Uh, God, thank you for giving us the the chance to have been together, many of us, for the last few months, uh, walk, walking through theology and, and what your word has to say about who you are and who we are and who Christ is. So I'm grateful for this. We pray that as we finish this up tonight and we talk about the doctrine of the future, uh, that you will speak to us and help us to understand what, what we need to take away, um, even though this is definitely a subject that can be full of controversies or disagreements among Christians. I, I just pray that the, the unity that we can find in Jesus would come through today. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I want to um, start by reading 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 13 to 18. And, and then we'll get into this. But um, we're talking about uh, the doctrine of the future, which is... A, but basically the theology of what is, I think most commonly we would call it the doctrine of the end times, uh, which kind of sounds scary. Um, or, you know, you, you, but there's a lot of things that are in this. But I think fundamentally, um, 1 Thessalonians 5 talks to us about what this doctrine entails, uh, at least partially, and then we'll, we'll do a deeper dive. But I, I want to start here. It says this, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are, who are asleep, that is, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, so there's just a very brief overview of what Paul tries to talk to first Thessalon- the Thessalonian church and First Thessalonians through the doctrine of the end and what happens when Christ comes back. But the thing I want to just hone in on there is that he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the doctrine of the future is not meant to scare us. It's not meant to make us you know, freak out. It's certainly not meant to make us fight with each other. It's meant to be an encouragement to those who are believers together with us. So I want to set the, the stage there, just set the tone here, because uh, we are going to talk about some controversial things. I'm going to try uh, to hide my own personal views as best as possible. I probably won't do a great job at that, but um, I'm not here to convince you of how I think about these these secondary issues or tertiary issues even. These, these are not the center, but they are important to think through. So I'm, we're going to walk through a lot of stuff tonight on but I want it to be an encouraging thing for you because that's what the Bible says this doctrine should be. All right, so let's work through this. Um, the doctrine of the future is also called eschatology. That's the technical term for what we're going to be discussing tonight, eschatology. Uh, it comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last. And, and so from there, ology is the study of, right? So it's the study of last things. Uh, it's the study of, of how human history wraps up and winds down and we, we, where we go from there. 
And so there's a bunch of aspects to eschatology. It's not just one particular thing. Um, there's a lot of facets to this. We're going to try to explore all of them, at least in some uh, level, but we won't be able to dig into any of them as deeply as, as we should or could. We could spend a whole 12 weeks just on eschatology. Uh, when you go to a Bible college, if you ever do, or you take a class uh, that's offered online or whatever, you're probably going to take an entire semester on, on this subject. Uh, it's, it typically falls under systematic theology three. Uh, most academic systematic theologies are broken into three semesters. So, so that's, that's where this is a huge subject, and, and one night is not going to be able to cover everything, but we'll do our best. Um, it's also important to know that lots of Christians have lots of different perspectives on this stuff. And so we need to have some degree of humility in this because it's, none of us truly completely know because we haven't gone through it. We haven't lived through it. Um, we, we have the scriptures to help us, uh, help guide us and help us to understand the, the vital things. But there's a lot that even the scriptures are not 100% clear on. Uh, and that's, I think that's intentional to some degree on God's part um, to keep us hoping and trusting and believing in him. So let's, let's be humble about this. Um, I, and I show you this, I've shown you this a few times throughout this, this uh, you know, three months or so. It's this little diagram of the uh, concentric circles that start with the absolutes in the center, move out to convictions, then move out to opinions, and then move out to questions. And uh, I think most of what we're talking about are going to be in these two outer rings, um, uh, at least in some, some aspects of this. Now, other things we'll talk about do fall into these first two, for sure. But, but we'll have to you know, discern for ourselves where, where things land. I, I think that we just need to recognize there's a lot of things within this subject that we don't know, and we are just working through it uh, as we walk through life and read the scriptures. Um, so just as an overall picture here, the reason why there's a lot of diversity of thought among Christians on this subject is that we are talking about things that haven't happened. That's one. But two, uh, much of the language the Bible uses about these things is in the form of symbolism. So, so taking a, an example of one thing and then trying to say that what's happening is like this. Well, whenever you say it's like this, that doesn't mean it is this, right? It's like this. And so Revelation, largely as a book, is symbolic. It uses lots and lots of symbolism. And, and that's another reason why Christians can come to different conclusions. Because we, we don't have, just within the very framework of, of the last book of the Bible, and Daniel and the other places that we get a lot of this information, uh, it, he, they're using a lot of imagery and symbolism and types and, and numbers and, and all of these things that, that can lead to different interpretations. So we should recognize that. Um, we're going to spend a little bit of time tonight talking about areas of disagreement, but most of what I want to talk about is areas where all Christians can agree, uh, at least largely, can, can come to some place where we can go, yeah, all right. Uh, we can at least agree on the fundamentals here. And I, will, I do want to touch on the things that we can disagree about too, because I think it's good for you to know that those positions exist. 
at least so that you, if you're interested, uh, can go and find resources and books and articles to help guide you uh, into deeper study. And if you need recommendations, I have lots. Uh, I can get you book recommendations and I can get you all kinds of things on that. But, but we're going to try to stick with what we can agree on largely and then talk a little bit about the difference, differences as well. Okay, so let's get to the actual definition of what we're talking about. I've, I've taken this just from the statement of faith that our church has, the Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith. Uh, here's, we're actually going to use, they have two different statements on this stuff. So we're going to use one here and one towards the later part of this as well. But here's, here's one of the point, points of doctrine. And I think this statement, again, the EFCA statement of faith is not Bible, right? It's, it's not. Uh, and your churches, if you're not a part of Springbrook, may have a different statement of faith. That's totally fine. Uh, but I think this is a really good kind of unifying statement. I don't think it's super controversial. At least, well, it used to be. We changed it a couple years ago. Praise God. Um, to, to take it to be less controversial or less divisive. But yes, here, here it is. Um, it says, we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. So in that statement uh, of faith, we're just acknowledging that we believe Jesus will come back um, in a personal, bodily, and glorious way. And, and that his coming is not known to any of us, but it's known to God. So we, we don't know when he's coming back. And... Uh, speculating isn't helpful on that. I, I think we were meant to not know, and we'll talk about that. Uh, but because he could come back at any time, uh, th- there's an expectation for that, and there should be an expectation uh, that would lead us to godly living, serving people sacrificially, being about the mission of proclaiming the gospel. These are all things that the return of Christ and the potential imminent return of Christ, that he could come back at any moment, um, as far as we can tell from Scripture, uh, is, is what motivates us to, to these things. So let, let's just unpack some of the parts of that. Because again, I think that that's a really, I, I don't know a lot of evangelical Christians of any denomination that would really bicker too much about that statement. It's a pretty generic statement. Um, and so they don't really... Well, they used to, but they don't anymore plant a flag in a particular interpretation. So let's just work through that statement together. Um, The first part of that is basically there will be a personal, bodily, and glorious return of Christ. And there's a whole bunch of passages here uh, that talk about this in the Bible. Uh, John 14, 3, Acts 1, 11, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. I think you could also put 1 Thessalonians 5 in there. Um, what we just read at the front of this, Hebrews 9.28, 1 John 3.2, Revelation 22.20, and there's many, many more. That's just a sampling. So let's work through these. I actually put them in the PowerPoint this time because I don't have to turn pages constantly. Uh, I think later I'll have to do that. But John 14.3 says Jesus is speaking here. He's telling his disciples that he's going to be going to heaven. He's preparing a place for them. Uh, And he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Uh, so, so there Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'm going to come back. And notice the personal language. See, so we're talking personal, bodily, and glorious return. He says, I will come again. That's a personal statement. He's going to come back to bring us to where he is. The angels uh, at Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1 say this. He says, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? So Jesus has gone up into the sky and everybody's staring up there. And they're just kind of caught up in there and they're not moving. So the angel shows up and says, why are you just standing there looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the, the emphasis there is on this Jesus, the very Jesus who left them will come back for them. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So there is a reference to the second coming, and it specifically says that Christ will appear a second time. So there's his return there. First um, John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. So when he appears, he himself is going to be the one that appears. And then um, Jesus himself again says in Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies to these things says, this is Jesus' word, surely I am coming soon. Now soon, I guess, is a uh, relative statement, right? Because <laughs> we're 2,000 years or so from there. But, uh, but we know that the Bible actually says that. A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. That's what Peter tells us. So, uh, yeah, soon is definitely uh, relative. It's only been a couple days or so, so for Jesus. Um, and then John closes by saying, amen, come Lord Jesus. All right, so we see that Jesus is over and over. And again, there's many, many more uh, passages we could look at here, but he's going to come back personally and bodily. And, and he himself will actually come back for us. The second aspect of that statement of faith we looked at is, is this, that Jesus will come or return at a time unknown only to God. Um, we don't know when Jesus is coming back, and we're not meant to. Jesus himself is the one who tells us this. Um, in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, and Mark 13, um, and, and he says, he emphasizes it multiple times throughout these, these passages. Well, let me just give you a few of these. Matthew 24, 44 says, Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect 25 13 watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour mark 13 32 and 33 but concerning that day or that hour of his return no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father be on guard keep awake for you do not know when the time will come uh, now there's some there's some debate among theologians as to whether Christ still to this day does not know his return or if it was just at the temporary period of time while he was in, incarnated on earth that he, that he put aside that knowledge. 
I don't think it really matters. Um, but at the end of the day, what this is telling us is that we don't know. Uh, whether Jesus knows now or not uh, is a discussion for a different day and for people who are smarter than me. But, um, but it, he clearly says at the end of this in verse 33, for you do not know when the time will come. So Jesus is going to come back at a time that only he knows. And, and I think that's, that's something we need to keep in, in our heads here because people constantly, it seems like, all the time somebody's coming out there saying, hey, Jesus is going to come back on this day for this reason because of blah, blah, blah. And they've always been wrong every single time. Um, there, are, there have been times throughout church history where whether it was good motives or not, I can't judge motives, but there, there are people who have deceived um, hundreds and hundreds of people into selling everything they own, um, convincing them that Jesus is going to come back. And, and so people just throw away their whole light livelihood, show up at the spot it's supposed to happen, and then Jesus doesn't come back, and now they're, they're sunk. You know? And there, there's all kinds of things like that throughout history. We need to be uh, just aware of what the Bible says so we're not duped into thinking this is going to happen, and it's going to happen when this clown on the internet says it's going to happen. Like, we, we just need to recognize maybe they're right, they're probably wrong. And I actually, my, my personal view is that Jesus is just going to keep not coming the days that get predicted. So stop predicting it so he can come back already. Let's, <laughs> let's, because uh, he's not going to be shown up by anybody. So, like, stop predicting his return. Nah, I'm just joking on that. Obviously, God's not in heaven going, oh, shoot, I was going to come back, and then they picked that day. No, but I still think it's silly for us to pick the days because it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Okay, and then the third component of, of that statement that we looked at is this, that we should eagerly long for Christ's return. It should give us some expectancy. It should give us some motivation uh, for, for ministry. So here's some passages, uh, 1 Corinthians 16.22, Titus 2.12-13, Matthew 25.21, Revelation 22.20. Um, this first one, 1 Corinthians says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. This, this, is, a, this is translated, I believe, out of the phrase Maranatha, uh, which is, um, I think, Aramaic. I believe it's an Aramaic word for... Come, Jesus. Like, there's expectancy. There's excitement in what Paul is saying. Lord, come. This is, a, this is something that he's longing for and hoping for. Titus 2, Paul says here to Titus, train, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, so here, Paul's connecting our godly living with our expectancy and our blessed hope of Jesus coming back in glory. So he tells us that this, this doctrine should train us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, now, here. So that this, is, this should be an eager longing, and it should motivate us for godly living. Uh, Matthew 25, 21, Jesus is in, this is in a parable. We're going to look at this parable more closely tonight. Um, but he says, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. 
I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And here's a, here's a parable Jesus tells about his own return and, and our uh, ex- expectancy of that and our motivation for living uh, it, because of that. And here he, in the parable, the master that returns says, enter into the joy of your master. And we, we will all get to enter into the joy of Jesus at his coming. And then finally, we showed this one already, but uh, the, the phrase again, Maranatha, is used again at the end of this, Revelation twenty two twenty. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Please return. We were excited and expectant of you coming. So, so that's um, basically what the doctrine of Christ's return entails, that he's going to come back personally, bodily, and gloriously. He's going to come back at a time that only God knows, and he's going to come back... Uh, which should make us eager and motivated to to live uh, the lives God wants us to in the meantime. So so let's spend a little time just walk, walking through where Christians can agree before we get into where Christians disagree. And then we'll spend some time talking about some of the, the nuance in this and where Christians uh, can have differences of opinion. But But I want to emphasize the unity first. Um, so here, here's what I'll say. No matter what the differences are on the, on the details of this, on like how it actually is going to come about, what it's going to look like, um, all Christians who take their Bible or the Bible as their final authority, um, as their, yeah, as their final authority, and agree that the final result of Christ's return is the final judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. So though, those who are in Christ will live eternally with him in a place, in a world that he recreates where there's no more sin, there's no more sadness, there's no more sickness. Every Christian agrees with that. We all know that's where it's going, okay? So we can, we can definitely disagree on the time frame and how that comes about and what happens in between Jesus, uh, what he's doing now till when he, when he sets that up. We, there's lots of areas of disagreement there. But we don't disagree on the outcome as Christians. We agree that this is what Jesus is going to do. And so just to give you a very clear picture of this, Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Okay, just a few verses here. Paints the picture for us of what this new heaven and new earth is going to be like. And Isaiah also mentions this. I think we'll look at uh, one or two examples from him as well. But Isaiah, I think it's chapter 65 and 66, he, he unpacks uh, in an Old Testament understanding, right, without the fullness of, of what the New Testament understood through Christ. Uh, he also understood that there would be a coming new heaven and new earth. But here's the culmination of it. Um, John is seeing a vision of these things, right? So he's sort of in a trance of some sort. He's, he's awake, but he's, he's not like dreaming it. He's being shown it. And here's what he's seeing. He's just describing what he sees. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And we could keep reading. He, he goes on to talk about more, more and more of this in that chapter. But I think that's a good sampling. And I think that that's, we need to keep our eyes on, on that. That's where the doctrine of the future takes us. It takes us to the new heavens and the new earth. That's the culmination of Christ's work for his people. So what we know for sure from the Bible is that we will live with Christ. He will dwell with us. We will dwell with him. We will embody this on the earth. Um, What that earth is going to look like or be like, there's a lot of unknowns about that. But John says he saw a new heaven, meaning I believe a new sky or universe. That's heaven is often used in that regard, not like a new heaven as in a place we go when we die, right? But this new beautiful creation, heaven and earth, the old had passed away. The new has come and God is with us. And there's no more crying, there's no more pain, there's no more mourning, there's no more suffering, and there's no more sin. So that's a beautiful thing. And that's where we all get to land at the end of the day. Um, how long it'll take for that to come about? Well, I don't know, right? But, but we know that that's the end goal here. Okay, so let's, let's work from there, though, onto what are some of the points of disagreement on this? Like, we all agree that's where we're going. We, we should, at least. Uh, I, I don't know that we can be Bible-believing Christians if we disagree that that's where it's going, because that's what the Bible clearly says. But there, there's a lot of differences over the specific details, um, there's, there's differences over the details that lead up to and immediately follow Christ's return. So the things that are leading up to his return, the things that happen right after he returns, um, and specifically there are differences between the nature of what is called the millennium. We're going to get into that complicated subject tonight. And then the sequence of events that lead up to the final return of, of Christ. Um, where he will judge the living and the dead, and he will then uh, bring about this new heaven and new earth. Lots of disagreements on the specifics of that. So we don't have time to get into all of it, um, because it's, again, just an hour and a half or so tonight. Um, We could easily do the whole 12 weeks on this, and maybe someday we will. I kind of doubt it, though. So (laughs) Uh, Because often... so, So here... A lot of the time, when we think about this stuff, we think about, like, this guy here, okay? Like, we think about just the crazed maniac in the basement with all the red lines that are connecting all these dots and just the, the frantic nature of it. And, yeah, that, that's, that's not what we're going to do tonight, okay? But I, I, that's typically what people think of when they think of, like, end-time stuff, like some kind of crazed conspiracy theorist type of person in the basement. But, uh, but we're going to try to make some sense out of it and not get too, too crazy, okay? So but let's, let's just unpack 
what is the millennium? Because I think the, the issue of the millennium is uh, probably the most contentious issue among end times uh, discussions and, and eschatology. Uh, so for those of you, I know probably a lot of you have never heard this concept. That's totally fine. So I'm going to try to unpack the, the concept. Um, the word millennium means a thousand years. You probably know that. Um, but the term, biblically speaking, comes from Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. And, and so um, let, me, let me just read that before we get too far ahead of ourselves. So that way we can at least see kind of the, the context for what we're talking about. Revelation 20, the first six verses or so, um, talk about the, the thousand-year Rain. And I think I'll just actually read that whole, the whole six verses, just so we have the context. Um, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then, the, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and not, had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The dead and the, the rest were dead. Oh, excuse me. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So you see this emphasis of a thousand years. There's a lot of things happening in there, right? The Satan's bound for a thousand years so as not to deceive the nations. Uh, you have uh, those who had, who lived, who were alive on the earth at that time, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, the, the dead in Christ were raised in the first resurrection, and then they uh, reigned with him for a thousand years. So, so this is a, a complicated passage, and it's led to a lot of different views. But basically, here's what we're, we're talking about as the trajectory of the end times goes. Okay, so we're in the church age. We're in this age of time where, where Christ has been crucified, risen, ascended into heaven. And now we're awaiting this return. And... When he returns, we're told that there will be some sort of thousand-year millennium uh, of, of Christ's kingdom. And then at the end of that, you have uh, the, the final judgment and then the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the basic trajectory of the, of the end times uh, like timeline. But there's a lot of differences of opinion on what the thousand years entails and how we get to it, and what that looks like. Historically, there's been three views on this. Um, there, I just put them in alphabetical order. Uh, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. 
And yeah, you're all like, oh, great. Here we go. All right. This is, it gets a little, get, it gets a little interesting. But I'll just walk you through, again, quick flyover, extremely quick flyover of each of these positions and try to keep my, my personal opinions to myself. Okay. Um, millennialism, And again, we're just doing this in the order in which they come alphabetically. I'm not putting them. A lot of times you read books. And uh, they'll, they'll put the perspective that they want you to believe last so you remember it the best. I'm not doing that, okay? I just want you to know what the views are. Put them in alphabetically. Um, and here's the basic view of amillennialism. Uh, it's the simplest of all the perspectives that are out there by far. Um, it basically says um, that the millennium is a symbolic period of time. That's where... So ah, uh, when you put ah uh, in front of a word, it negates that. So it, a lot of times this, this gets a little bit mischaracterized as there is no millennium. That's not what it means. It means that there's no literal earthly millennium, but it's a symbolic millennium uh, that basically is throughout the whole church age. Um, so the millennial reign of Christ is symbolic of the church age and will culminate at his return. That's the very quick snapshot of what amillennialists believe. And it is the prevailing view historically of the church. I don't say that to convince you that it's right. We've, we've been wrong about lots of things. So just because it's the oldest view and the most prevalent view of the early church doesn't mean it's right inherently, um, but it is probably the most uh, or the oldest view. And, it, and it's old because it's simple. Um, I've got some charts because some of you are picture people. So... This, help, this may help you kind of grasp what we're talking about. So the cross is Jesus, right? The, the crucified, risen Jesus. He's ascended into heaven. This timeline here at the bottom is time going through history. All of this is, a, is where we're living now. And it's a symbolic millennium that culminates at this moment of the second coming and the judgment. And then everything after that line would be the new heavens and the new earth. So basically, amillennialism is described this way. You can basically describe it as Jesus died, rose again, ascended. He will come back when he's good and ready, and he'll do everything he's, he said he's going to do and just be done with it. So you can see why that's somewhat compelling because it's like really easy. I can, I, you know, I can get behind that, right? It's just like, wow, that's simple. Um, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to solve all the problems. There's no, there's no like crazed you know, lines that you have to draw on the map. You're just... We're just plugging away until Jesus comes back. Um, Amillennialists would, would take the book of Revelation and see it as a symbolic book, uh, not a book that's necessarily talking about the future events, but something that's actually talking about the entire time between the, the coming of Christ and uh, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So they would say that the book is actually divided up between um, two perspectives. And, you're and it's basically the Bible, or the, the book of Revelation is telling the same story twice. One from heaven's perspective and one from earth's perspective. So that's what it, that would explain like the different scenes. Sometimes we're looking at heaven, sometimes we're on earth. And an amillennialist would say, listen, this is just describing the church age. The age of where we live as human beings until Christ comes back, and there's a lot of mess in it, 
There's also uh, of the fact that Christ rules and reigns as our king. And so they would say that since Christ declared uh, in Mark 1.15 that the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry in Mark that the, that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amillennialists would, would take that and say, okay, Jesus is saying that he's the king right here, right now, in this age. We don't, we're not waiting for some future millennial reign of Christ. He's reigning as king right now in, in our hearts, in the church. Um, and so we're living in Christ's kingdom now, they would say. He's the king and, and he'll come again when he's ready. So that's the basic flyover. Um, if There's a whole lot more to it. I have a number of books on my bookshelf that, that are thick and uh, talk about amillennialism in much more detail. But that's one perspective. Second perspective is post-millennialism. So post means after, right? When you put that as a pre- prefix in front of something. The post-millennial view believes that there will be uh, such progress of the gospel and growth of the church that eventually, over time, the majority of people on earth will be Christians. Thus, creating a millennial kingdom on earth by default because there's so many Christians. And after this long period of time of this earthly Christian utopia, um, Christ will come back to sit on the throne. And that basically is signifying that Christ's return happens after the millennium, right? So the millennium happens first through the conversion of Christians all around the world to, to the point where the, church, the world becomes so Christianized that we're just by default a Christian world. And after some period of time of living in that, doesn't have to be a literal thousand years, but after some period of time, Christ will come back and will establish the new heavens and the new earth. So the picture for this is that you've got uh, the cross. The timeline is just plugging away. People become Christians Pretty soon, there's so many Christians that were in this beautiful millennial kingdom. Everything's wonderful. And then Christ comes back. And then after that, new heavens and new earth. Um, so the post-millennial view uh, was really well received um, before the onset of the world wars. It's actually one of the predominant views um, at, in kind of the pre-world war time period. Because people were seeing a lot of, so, at least apparently, traction of the gospel. And missions were happening. People were becoming Christians. It was a very exciting time. And then um, the world wars happened. And the, the, the evils of that and um, the, the fact that a lot of people lost their faith during that. Um, C.S. Lewis was actually an, a veteran of Britain in World War I and then obviously was still actively during World War II serving his country from you know, where he was. Not, he was too old to fight at that point. But, um, and, and C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of his books, and he himself struggled with his own faith because of World War I and the trench warfare he experienced. That was a very pivotal thing. So he saw a lot of people coming or losing faith. And anyways, but th- this, this perspective, and again, I'm not saying that that makes it wrong. I'm just saying that it's lost a lot of its... Uh, support now 
It's not really the predominant view. Um, it may be making a comeback. I don't know. Um, I'm not totally compelled by it, but um, it's, it's really a hopeful one. I kind of hope it's right, to be honest with you. <laughs> like, it'd be great if they were right about this. Um, but because of the things that happened during the World War and because people were starting to leave the church, that it sort of lost its, its shine. Um, but proponents of this view will tell you that you have to take the, the long, long view. So they would warn us, if, if I was a post-millennialist, I would tell you, you know, you can't just look at the snapshot in time that we're in right now and make a judgment that this is incorrect. You gotta look at this through the long, the long game. And so they would make that point and go, listen, over time, over a long period of time, Jesus will become vic- victorious on the earth. He will uh, convert enough people to himself. The church will grow. We will become this. I don't know, but that, that would be great if it happened. I'm rooting for him. I really am. So that would be cool, but, but we'll see. We'll see how that shakes out. Okay, um, third one, premillennialism. Uh, this is one, the, first, the most complex of all the views by far. Um, and even within the premillennial view, there are different perspectives. There's not just one kind of cut and dry uh, perspective here. Premillennialism is a pretty complicated subject in, in itself. But the, the preface pre means before. So premillennials believe that Christ will come back before the millennial kingdom. So their view would basically be that, uh, and again, it's way more complicated than this, but Jesus is going to come back when he comes back. And at that time, he's going to set up an earthly, literal 1,000-year reign. Uh, At least most premillennials believe it will be a literal 1,000-year reign. Not all do. There's, again, complexity in that. Uh, but they would say that the, the return of Christ happens and then the millennium kingdom, millennial kingdom is set up for a thousand years, roughly there. And then there's uh, one final uprising of rebellion. Christ squashes all of his enemies, judges, and then enter, ushers us into the new heavens and the new earth. So within pre-mill, I'm going to just call it pre-mill because I, mean, I don't want to say pre-millennial constantly. Okay, so we're shortening it. Uh, within pre-mill theology, there are two main schools of thought. Uh, there is the historic pre-mill and the dispensational pre-mill. Th- these are, they, they kind of come to the same outcome, but they have differences of, of opinion on some things. So we'll kind of work through both of those. Because um, I think they're both distinct enough. Uh, historic premill says this: According to this viewpoint, the present church age, where we are right now, will continue until, as it nears the end, a great time of tribulation and suffering will come to the earth. After that time of tribulation, at the end of the church age, Christ will return to earth to establish His kingdom for a thousand years. Okay, so here's the picture of historic premillennialism. Um, Christ is there. We're somewhere in here, okay? Depending on who you ask, we might be right here by that T. I don't know, but they would say this, that eventually there will be a tribulational period as the world winds down. Um, and that 
some view that as a literal seven-year tribulation, which Re- Revelation does reference a seven years of tribulation. Is the number seven symbolic or is it literal? Again, that's one of those points of disagreement among Christians, but some would say it's a literal seven years at the end. Some would say, no, it's just kind of a period of time of tribulation. And then Christ comes back and he ushers us into a thousand years of peace and prosperity. Uh, and then he will, at the end of that, there will be an uprising of, of his enemies. He will defeat them. He will then judge the, the believers and the unbelievers. And then we will enter into a state of uh, new heavens and new earth. So basically, the historic pre-mill view, the, the one major distinction here between this and dispensationalism really comes down to where does the tribulation fall in all of this? Okay, so I'll, I'll explain that in just a second. But let's look at this one because I think the, the differences will become clear when we unpack what dispensational premillennialism is. But first, I should probably define pre, uh, dispensational. Okay, so... Again, holy cow, right? Uh, dispensationalism is, a, is an interpretive way of looking at the Bible. And for just simplicity's sake, um, dispensationalism believes that God has two different distinct people. He has the Jews and he has the church. And he deals with these two groups independently. Um, and, he, and he has to deal with the Israelites separately and he deals with the church Separately. Now, that's obviously broad brush uh, kind of definition of dispensationalism. There's a lot more to it. It's a whole interpretive system in the Bible, and it's way more complicated than I just made it. But, um, but that's the, for our purposes tonight, that's kind of the key distinction there. God has two different groups of people. He's got to deal with them. That's going to come into this. So according to this viewpoint, uh, the present church age will continue until suddenly, unexpectedly, and secretly, Christ will return partway to earth, partially to earth, and will call the church to himself. After the church has been removed, or you've heard, probably heard the phrase raptured, that's where this view comes from, Christ will set a period of seven years of tribulation upon the earth after the church is raptured out. And at the end of the seven years, Christ will then return completely, not just partially, but totally to the earth. Uh, and he will bring us with him as his church to reign for a thousand years. Now, the reason that the church gets raptured out is under the dispensational viewpoint is because God has to deal and, and discipline Israel, deal with and discipline Israel. So the seven years of tribulation are primarily for his judgment on Israel. The church doesn't have to be a part of that. So we get to go uh, out of this thing and... He takes us away for seven years, and then we come back. Um, again, like there are some of you who probably grew up with that and believe that, and that's, that's fine. I mean, we can have dis- disagreements or whatever. I'm not super compelled by that view. I think it has some problems, but again, not going to fight over it. So, um, but the, the main thing here is the distinction between dispensational premillennialism and historic would be the purpose of the tribulation, and historic premillennialists basically would say, you know what, the tribulation is going to happen. It'll probably be seven years long, uh, but it's for everybody because God has one people, true people, his church, right? Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them in also so there will be one flock, one shepherd. To me, that, that passage is pretty clear on this point, but 
whatever, it's fine. Um, so we're, we're talking about, but that's the main distinction there. So here's the picture for dispensational pre-mill. You have Christ. He's going he's gonna to rapture his church up at some point in time secretly. He's not going to announce when it's happening. We're all just going to disappear uh, if we're Christians. The people who are not Christians and the, and the Jewish people will be in a seven-year tribulation period. Christ will come back. Then the millennium, then the judgment, then the heavens and the new earth. So, yeah, that's a more complicated system. And, and for some, some that's really compelling and cool, great, I'm happy for you. So, all right, uh, there's, there's one more quick view here, uh, and it's called preterism. And I, and I have to deal with preterism a little separately from the millennial views. It's still in the same world, but, but it is kind of its own distinct thing. Um, so there's, a, there's an approach to the biblical teaching of the last days uh, that we call preterism, which is different than the millennial views, quite a bit different. And, uh, and it basically teaches that many or probably all of the prophecies of Jesus' coming, his return, were fulfilled uh, by God uh, when he judged Jerusalem in AD 70. So I am not telling you this because I'm convinced of this at all. I just think this is an interesting thing, and it is out there. It's a perspective that exists, that basically when God dealt with Jerusalem in AD 70, and everyone agrees and knows historically God destroyed the temple through the Romans in AD 70. Well, preterists would believe that that was what the end times prophecies in Revelation and uh, in uh, Jesus's Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25 and Mark 13, what he was talking about, they would say, is uh, the, the destruction of Jerusalem. And so when that happened, all of this was fulfilled. And so we're not really looking for some future fulfillment of these things. Um, the, the argument for preterism largely hinges on the passages that speak of the nearness of Jesus' coming. So um, from a first century perspective, so when Jesus says in Luke 21, uh, he says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I italicize that. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. So when Jesus said that, a preterist would say, see, the kingdom of God is near. He's talking to people in the first century, talking to people who 40 or 50 years from now will see Jerusalem destroyed by the Romans. And then he says, this generation will not pass away until it's all taken place. So the preterist would say, well, is Jesus lying if these things didn't take place before that generation passed away? How else do you understand this generation? So that, you know, that's, that's the most compelling argument, I think, for this. But I think there are ways to answer that. Um, so here's how I would land on this. Um, first, it's probably true. Actually, I, I think it is true uh, that some of the things Jesus said would happen uh, in the first century were, for, were fulfilled when, G, when the destruction of Jerusalem took place. So you, would, you could call me a partial preterist, okay? I'm not a full preterist because I think that's actually heresy. But... Um, but I do think that some of the things Jesus was talking about were about the, the destruction of the temple and, and some of the things, not all of them, right, were, were fulfilled then. 
But the idea that Jesus has already returned, which is what the preterists would say, that this has all been fulfilled in the first century, well, that's a problem. That's a really big problem. Actually, I think it's probably a heresy. So uh, we got to be real careful on how far we take that personally. Um, but preterism or semi-preterism or whatever, partial preterism, however you want to call it, uh, you know, there's, there's some interesting things to discuss there. If you want to read up on that, I can get you some resources. There's plenty of stuff out there on it. But um, yeah, so the fire hose we just drank from. Do you have any questions about it at all? <laughs> I'm sure you have lots of questions. Yeah, Rodney, go for it. Yeah, I'm a, you were saying about the pre uh, the seven year tribulation. Uh, I, I, have, I had a preacher, I was going to a church, HWC, for a while, and they believe, which I don't believe that either, but they believe that we'll be in the pre trib, they believe in pre trib, and we'll go through halfway through the tribulation before Christ comes back to get us. Yep. And the rapture would not take place till after the tribulation. Well, that ain't, what, do you, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah. Uh, so there's different perspectives. I didn't go through all of them. There's a, there's a, a pre-tribulation rapture. There's a mid-tribulation rapture or there's a post-tribulation rapture. And I didn't want to have you guys have to think about all that so much. <laughs> So there's, there's perspectives that, are, that exist out there. Um, I, I don't believe in any rapture, so I, I'm not the guy to ask about that. You'll have to ask someone who believes in the rapture. But oh, I just showed my cards. Oh, shoot. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I, that's not my perspective. So, but, yeah, it's an int- there's a lot of perspectives on that. So. But we'll be, taken out, we'll be taken out. Uh, rapture will take place before the tribulation, right? Uh, those who want to believe that, yes, sure. Well, <laughs> I don't know, Rodney. I mean, yeah. But generally what you're describing is the common, that's the most common perspective, what you're talking about. Yeah. That would be the predominant view among churches that believe in that. So, or pa- or people who believe that. Um, yep, that's hard stuff. So, <laughs> so someone once said that... Uh... It doesn't really matter what we think God's going to do what he wants. Sure. Didn't I hear that? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) And, you know, I I did come through a stage in my life where things were really legal. Yeah. And there's only one way, you know. And I appreciated your perspective at the beginning that we really have to be gracious with one another because even if we wanted to say this is the right way, people have got to go through their life until the Lord brings them to that. Yep. Even if it is right. And we just have to be really with a lot of grace mm. and a lot of love and let the Lord do what he's going to do. The other thing that I would say is what I feel like I've always wanted a list, as it were. God gives mm. a list. And we kind of did that in the Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> and now for the believer... So much of what we find is we get a little piece here and a little piece there and a little piece there. And unless we really study the the entire New Testament and a lot of the Old Testament, it's not just laid out A, B, C, D. And and that prompts us to study God's Word. And then the last thing is is what you were saying is to, to love God, love people be expectant for his return mm-hmm. all of those things and, and part of all of the things that we're, we're talking about whatever perspective that we come to has got to find not what Tom's opinion is or Nathan's opinion 
but how can we prove it from the word of God yeah. by what he has shown us? That's right. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, and I think just to that, yeah, to that point, I, there's one, there's one view that is thrown out there. It's called panmillennialism, which means that it's all going to pan out in the end. So don't worry about it. Uh, that might be the best approach, even if we have a perspective. And I, and I'm not, and I say that tongue in cheek, you know, I think it's good to study things and think about them and yeah, but, but God is going to do what God's going to do. And let's be grateful that he's that he loves us and he, he's not, he doesn't have judgment for us at the end of all of this. So thank you for that, Nathan. I appreciate what does that. What that mean then when he comes and takes us like a thief in the night? What would that mean then? Yeah. Um, so if you ask somebody who, who believes in the pre-tribulational rapture, they would say that that's indicative of the secret removal of the church, right? The people. Um, I think there's a way to understand that in, I understand that through a, um, basically like what I started this with, well, we don't know the time or the hour. And so when there's a thief in the night coming, like he doesn't announce when he's going to show up, right? And so I think that the, the language there is just indicative of God's going to come back. Jesus is going to come back when he comes back. And we're not, we're not given the sticky note on the door to say, I'm going to rob your house, you know, this, this day. So that's how I would understand that passage was, is just Jesus giving us another example of the expectancy that we need to have that, hey, this could happen anytime. Um, but the, yeah, there, the, obviously there's a lot of things to chew on there. And, and there's great, wonderful people who um, love Jesus and, and would interpret things differently than me on, on a lot of this. And that's totally fine. And, I, and I've taken kind of a different, I mean, I've, I've changed perspectives as time has gone on in my life. And I will probably change perspectives again at some point because it's just one of those things you, you, can, you can be compelled in a moment of time and you go, yeah, that seems right. And then as you study more and look at it more, it may change your perspective in a different way. So I'm not, I don't think my journey's done on where I'm at and I haven't totally shown my cards, but I have shown you where I'm not, at least on one, one issue. Uh, but yeah, I, there's a lot of passages that, this is a complicated subject because there's so many things from so many different places. So you got to try to weave them all together to make this basket. And it just gets to be like, you can have a perspective and someone from a different perspective says, well, what about this? And you're like, oh, yeah, what about that? And, but then you say, well, what about this? And they go, well, yeah, I don't know. What about that? It's just hard to weave it all into a cohesive, absolute system. That's, yeah. One thing that you were saying there before um, is... Are you going to cover it, or is there time now to cover it really quickly, the, the difference, and is there a difference between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne? Uh, I will get to that somewhat, yeah. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about that for sure. So, All right, well, let's keep rolling because we got <laughs> times a short here. Okay, um, let's talk about the intermediate state. Um, so the intermediate state is um, what we would, would call the interval of time, if you can use the word time, I don't know if that's quite right, but uh, the interval of time in which the dead, those who die before Christ's return, await final judgment and the resurrection of the body. So during this time, the experience of Christians is very different from that of unbelievers. So basically what the intermediate state talks about is what happens when we die. Like if we die before Jesus returns, uh, what happens to us? What do we, what do, we do? So that, that's what we call the intermediate state because it's the state between life here on earth uh, as we know it now 
and the new heavens and the new earth um, or the millennial kingdom or whatever that this perspective that we're going to have with Christ. Um, so th- just real quickly, we don't have to spend tons of time here, but um, the Bible is clear that when we die, we immediately, if we're believers in Jesus, go to be with him. We go to be with him. Uh, and that's about as simple as, as uh, I can state it. And um, Ecclesiastes 12.7 says that the, the dust returns to the earth. I think that's in reference to the human body going back to dust, right? The old uh, Anglican statement, and I don't know, maybe it's in the Catholicism uh, burial ceremony as well, but this dust to dust, ashes to ashes, you know, this idea of we're putting someone in the ground and we're made from the dust. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that. We're back to dust. Um, but our spirit, Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, returns to God who gave it. So we, we die, our bodies go back to dust, but our spirit returns to God. New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.8, yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, so there's this picture of being Absent from the body, away from the body, but at home or present with the Lord. Paul's talking about death there. Luke twenty three forty two to 43, Jesus says, um, or the, the, the thief on the cross says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Obviously, that man was going to die that day. And Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. So I think, I think the overall teaching of the Bible is for believers, um, where we go when we die is directly into the presence of the Lord, if we're Christians. There are a couple unbiblical views that I think, um, were actually, some of them were brought up last week. I thought I should address them a little bit today. Um, there are two unbiblical views in my view, in my opinion, they're unbiblical. Um, and I think one is very clearly unbiblical. The other, uh, you know, Christians of goodwill can hold to it. I would disagree with them on it for sure. But, um, the two views that I'm talking about would be, uh, purgatory, uh, which I think is completely wrong. And, and then soul sleep, which I think is wrong, uh, but maybe not purgatory wrong okay so like there's there's distinction there i think um purgatory is the roman catholic view um that teaches us that we still need some refining after we die before we're good enough to get into heaven and so when we die our souls go into this state of purgatory where we're basically suffering to some degree or another where our sins are being purged so we're not suffering in a eternal hell way, but we are still suffering somewhat because there's still sin that's got to get burned off of us. Um, honestly, though, this doctrine flies in the face of justification by faith alone. And it was one of the key reasons why the reformers in the 1500s, Luther, Calvin, and others, uh, were so vehement against this doctrine because it, it fl- flies in the face of a once for all, Jesus covers all of our sin theology, which is what the Bible teaches. And so I think it needs to be rejected outright, personally, um, because what it implies is that Christ's sacrifice did not cover you fully from your sin. 
And uh, the Bible teaches that it does. So, so that's where that issue falls. Um, the other issue is soul sleep. Uh, this is held by denominations like Seventh-day Adventists. They're probably the most well-known group that holds to this view. Some Pentecostal churches as well. Um, and there are others. But th- this perspective be- holds that believers die and then our souls uh, sleep in, in our bodies in the grave, until we are awakened at the resurrection of the dead at Christ's return. The reason why people view it this way, I think the only real argument for it is that Paul calls death sleep sometimes. It's not a real strong argument, if you ask me, because it's, Paul's using an analogy for death when he talks about some have fallen asleep. I don't think he's making a theological point uh, that our souls are asleep because he'd be talking out of both sides of his mouth. If he says we're absent from the body and present with the Lord, uh, I think he's using sleep as an analogy uh, for the, the body that will be resurrected. Yes, so in, in a sense, like our bodies will be ra- raised to life again, but we will be reunited with our souls uh, at, that, at, the second, at the first resurrection um, when, we're, when we're raised from, from death. So... Um, our souls go to be with Jesus. I believe the Bible clearly teaches that. Our bodies remain in the ground until they're raised again. And we talked, I think, last week about, or a couple of weeks ago, I think, about that issue of um, the, the resurrected body and that kind of thing. Um, so I don't, I'm not compelled by soul sleep. I think it's, a, it's got a pretty weak argument biblically. I wouldn't say someone who holds it isn't a Christian, though. I, I, I mean, I, I would ask, like, why do you think that? That seems kind of weird. But um, my, my wife worked at a camp uh, in North Carolina, and it was, a, it was not a Seventh-day Adventist camp, but it was, uh, it was a kind of an offshoot of Seventh-day Adventist theology. And, and all of those people uh, believed in soul sleep, and she thought that was really weird. And then she went to a funeral for someone who was associated with the camp, and um, I think she did. I think, or maybe she was just hearing the story. I can't remember. I'm getting my wires crossed, but whatever. She was told... Um, that the, the, yeah, that's right. The person who had passed away was not a Seventh-day Adventist. The pastor who was doing the funeral basically said that, you know, she's with Jesus. And the director of the camp was talking about this to my wife. And, and he said, well, I was sitting there going, no, she's not. She's right there. She's just in that coffin right there. Like, and to me, I kind of have to go, why would you want to believe that? That sounds so depressing to me. So I would, I would much rather believe the Bible and say we go to be with the Lord. So that's, that's where we're at. Okay, um, when a fellow believer dies, or when we die someday, we can be assured uh, that they'll be present with the Lord on that day in their spirit um, until the time Christ returns to resurrect our bodies. So there's hope in that, in, in my view. Any quick questions on that? I know that was kind of a quick, we, we're not spending a ton of time there, but, yep. You answered that really good. I was very interested in that. You answered yeah. that really good. Well, thanks. And, uh, that's where, you know, we said some Pentecostals believe, and the AWC, that was which would be a Pentecostal, or yep. they believe that, well, like when my cousin died, uh, Dana Emery died, that she will sleep, her soul will sleep until the time that Christ comes from the resurrection, right there. I, I said, no, I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, what do we, what do we have to look forward to 
when we die, if the soul is sleeping mm -hmm. with the body, when you should be, you know, when you automatically go to heaven, that's what we look forward to. Yeah. You know, when we when we die, is to go to heaven right away. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I'm with you. I, 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 I like I like that. you answer those questions. Great. Thanks. Appreciate that. Glad we don't have to take our body with us. Yes, that's right. Let's go to. Uh, forget that the purgatory is for the Catholics. Yeah. It is a big belief. You know, we can hold all these extra masses and pray yeah. a lot of purgatory when you're stuck there because you're you're like stuck there, and our magic prayers are gonna swim you out. There so. you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. There you go. That's that's one way to do it. So, <laughs> well, let's talk about the final judgment here. Um, this will this will be fun here. Um, this is also from the EFCA statement of faith. So, just to read this basic statement, uh, we believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to Him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment, and the believer to eternal blessedness with the, and joy with the Lord in the new heaven uh, and the new earth, to the praise of his glorious grace. So that statement works through a lot of things, um, but the key components are that God desires and commands everyone everywhere to believe in Jesus. And we do that by repenting and receiving him. Um, but basically, uh, depending on how we stand with that, where we stand on that, um, when, we're, when the dead are raised, um, there's one of two outcomes. There really is. There's just one of two outcomes. We will either enter into the blessedness of, our, of the joy of our master and, and experience eternal pleasures with him forever, uh, or we will be um, assigned to eternal conscious punishment in hell. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. It's not popular to talk about. It's not fun to talk about. It makes us sad to think about um, people who will suffer eternally. Uh, but it's not, it, we'll get into some more of this, but, it, but it's an important doctrine because the Bible does teach it. And, and so we, we're going to walk through some of that here. Um, Scripture frequently affirms the, the fact that there will be a great final judgment of believers and unbelievers, and we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ uh, in one way or another, either as a believer or an unbeliever, in resurrected bodies, and hear his proclamation of our eternal destiny. So um, there's a lot of verses there. Um, I'm not, we're not going to go through every one of them. I've picked out a sampling of them, so we'll work through these, but Revelation 20, 11 to 15, Acts 17, 30, 31, Romans 2, 5, on and on. Um, so here's a, here's a couple examples. Um, Acts 17 says, the times of ignorance uh, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So that's Paul is explaining to the people in Athens 
uh, at this point that there is a time God is fixed to judge the world in righteousness through Jesus. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, he's worthy of, of being that great judge. Romans 2.5, Paul says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day uh, of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So that he's talking to unbelievers um, because of their hard and impenitent hearts. They're storing up wrath for themselves, which God will bring uh, on judgment on. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. This will be the last one we look at, but th- that whole long list is, there's a bunch. So, uh, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart? Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So the final judgment uh, will occur after the millennium um, or upon Christ's return, if you're on mill or post-mill, right? And again, there's, there's differences of perspective there. But the final judgment comes at the end of human history. Um, and we see that Jesus will be the judge. He's the one that God has appointed for that, right? Paul speaks of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead in 2 Timothy 4.1, as well, Acts 10, Matthew 25, John 5. Uh, Jesus will be the judge. Unbelievers will be judged, and they will be judged into eternal punishment for their rejection of Christ. It's not just willy-nilly, like, oh, you deserve this, or you're a bad person. It's you, you, you had the chance, the opportunity, and the call and command to believe. And you either had a hard heart or a rejection of Christ. And so the, the punishment is due to that. Um, there seems to be indication in the Bible that there will be degrees of punishment in this. I don't know how much I understand about that. Uh, but there does seem to be some indication of that. I'll give you a few examples um, and again, I don't, uh, it's way beyond my pay grade to know how that works. Um, but Revelation 20, 12, and 13, um, I overshot here. It says, um, John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what he had done according to what he had done. Uh, And so there was judgment according to what was done. Uh, Luke chapter 12, uh, 12 to uh, 47 to 48. Let's read that real quick here. Um, It says, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who does not know and did what, what, uh, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom he, they entrusted much will demand the more. And so there Jesus seems to be indicating that depending on your kind of ignorance or not ignorance of things, uh, there may be degrees of punishment there. And again, I don't know. I'm not going to dive too deep into that because I I really don't fully understand it. But I wanted to give you a few examples. There seems to be that. Um, 
in addition to non-believers being judged, believers will also be judged. Um, a Christian's judgment, though, is not to condemn us, uh, but to reward us. Um, and so there's a difference there. Now, again, there may be degrees by which rewards are given. Again, beyond my pay grade. Don't know how that all works. Um, but there is a clear call that we will stand before this, the judgment seat of Christ, the white throne, right? That's, that's what we're talking about. I think you can maybe distinguish some of that for me because I don't know that I have too much in there. But, um, but when, when we talk about the believer's judgment, it's not judgment to condemnation. The Bible says that if you've been justified, there is now no condemnation. Uh, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation. That's true now and it's true eternally. So we don't need to fear the judgment seat of Christ as Christians. The, the degree in which we're rewarded or commended may be different for us, and, and God's going to deal with that in, on an individual basis. But we will all enter into the joy of our master, and that's, that's the key. Um, Revelation eleven eighteen. let's read that real, real quick here. Um, it says... Um, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding your saint and for rewarding your saints, your servants, I'm sorry, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So so here we're seeing this this picture of that judgment day when believers will stand before the Lord, but it's for the rewarding of God's servants, for his prophets and his saints, his saints being believers, right? That's what saints are in the scriptures. And we know that because it says those who fear your name, those who honor and revere the Lord Jesus, both the small and the great. So there's, there's a sense in which our, our judgment will be for reward. Uh, Hebrews 8.12. Uh, let's look at that as well. Um, um, it just says this, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's not just here and now. That's eternally. He will be merciful towards our iniquities, and remember our sins no more. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, uh, Paul seems to be indicating a, uh, what God is going to do with us in, in this regard. And it says, um, now, well, let's back up to verse 11, actually. It says, for, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Um, if the work has, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, 
but only as through fire. So someone might say, well, that's purgatory. It's not purgatory. Okay, that's not what, that's not what we're talking about. Um, what we're talking about is the final judgment there, right? And so what he's saying is, is there's one foundation. We can't add to the foundation. We can't lay the foundation. Christ is the foundation. But we can participate in building up his church and building up uh, other believers within that. And he seems to indicate that there's differences of of material that we can use symbolically, right? Some of us gold, some of us precious stones or silver, and others of us wood, hay, straw. So wood, hay, and straw are obviously going to burn away. Um, and and I, I think this is talking about the fact that there are believers who um, may not contribute to uh, the, the church to the degree that God would want them to, um, and therefore, he's going to just kind of burn away the, the work that they did that may not have been good or right, but they themselves will be saved. They're, they're secure, even if the work that they did does not yield much reward for them. So it's interesting. Um, lot to talk through there. Um, so Jesus, I'm, I'm not going to go into all of this. We don't have the time, uh, but Matthew 25 is one of the key passages where Jesus talks about the final judgment. Um, but I want to spend just a couple minutes talking about hell specifically, because right now we've just spent time talking about the believer's judgment to reward. Um, but hell is where unbelievers will go, and it's defined as a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. And the wicked is not, does not mean that they're worse than us. It just means that they have not brought their sins to be washed away by Christ. All of us are wicked in our hearts, but Jesus wipes away our sins. And so we don't fall into that category. This is all over the Bible. Jesus actually himself speaks of hell more than anyone else in the whole scripture. Matthew 25, 30 uh, and 41 and 46. Mark 9, 43 and 48. Luke 16, 22 to 24. Revelation 14, 9 to 11 and 19, 3 and 20, 10. Um, so we're not going to, again, we're just running short on time, so we won't belabor all of that. Um, but the Bible clearly teaches a doctrine of hell and that it is an eternal and conscious punishment for those who reject Christ. So the natural question that comes to us most of the time is, well, is God unfair or unloving to send people to hell? And I know that this is a real emotional subject for some of us because we don't want to think of loved ones that aren't with Jesus. And so our, sometimes our natural proclivity is to go, well, God is just, he's love, right? So that means just love is going to win in the end and everybody's going to somehow make it. And there's people out there who have tried to make that case and I think have failed pretty miserably at it. But, but let, when we think about the issue of hell, we need to remember this. Um, if God is going to be just, and we want God to be just, to be just means we, we deal with what's wrong in the world. And if he's just, he's gonna, he has to deal with sin. That's the reality. And thankfully, by God's grace, he has given us a way to not go to hell. All of us deserve it. Everyone in this room deserves to go to hell. I do, you do. That's what we deserve. And if God was truly fair, none of us would go to heaven, okay? That's the fact. Like, we have a God who has given us a way of escape, through Jesus, 
It has to be through Jesus, but it's open to everybody. Everybody can come to Jesus. Uh, Anybody who wants to come to Jesus, he's not going to hold them back and say, no, you can't. You want to, you really want to, but no, I'm not going to let you. There are, but there are going to be people who will just to the very end reject it and ignore it and refuse it and have hard hearts. And, and that doesn't make God unfair or unkind. It makes God just. To, because all of us are, R.C. Sproul called us, um, or said, described it this way, that sin is cosmic treason. It's cosmic treason. We have a king in heaven who gets to call the shots. And if we don't obey him and respond to him as he demands that we do, uh, then he is right and just to deal with that uh, through, through punishment. That's not pleasant to think about, but it's, it's the reality. And so there, there is a, uh, there's a judgment of believers where our, where our deeds will be rewarded or not, perhaps, but we will enter into glory at the end of it. And then there is a judgment for unbelievers, which leads them into uh, eternal punishment for the sins that they have and continue to commit without repentance. So I'm going to pass by this real quick because we'll get to questions at the end, but we have, I think, one more section, and that is uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Right? This is where it all culminates. So after the final judgment, believers will enter into the full enjoyment of life in the presence of God forever. Matthew 25, 34, Revelation 22, 3 says that. Now, usually when we talk about eternity with God, uh, we use the word heaven. Like, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. We talk about that. Usually what we mean by heaven is what we call, what we call the intermediate state. Technically, though, where we actually go at the end of all of this is a new earth. Um. I don't know that we think about that very much. Like we're not just going to be floating spirits up in some cloudy space, sitting on clouds, playing harps and diapers or whatever we've kind of created there. That's that actually personally sounds like hell to me, not heaven. So uh, I just don't, I don't want to go there. That's not where it, that's not what it is. That's, that's some modern conception of things. But where we're ultimately going is a new earth. And there's a lot of beauty in that. And, and it's an amazing thing because when you think about the earth, even now, even in its brokenness, there's so much joy here. There's so much beauty here. There's su- such glorious things here that God has given us to enjoy and to know him. And how much more amplified will that be when it's perfect, when it's remade, when, when it's what it should have always been? There's going to be some beautiful things there. So Isaiah 65, 66, talk about this. 2 Peter 3, 13, Revelation 21, 1 to 3, which we read at the top of this um, time here. So the new creation, here's what we know. There's a lot we don't know about what the new creation will entail, but it will be a place of great beauty, abundance, and joy in the presence of God. That's what we know for sure. And all the other things are like, wow, can't wait to find out. But, um, but that's, where, that's where we're going. We're going to be with Jesus fully and finally. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit will be present with us. We will dwell with them. We will, him, right? One person, one, three persons, one guy. I got to go back to that first lecture and teach myself again. Um, but 
that, you know, that reality of this Trinitarian God that we serve, that we will be in his presence and, and fully be what we were always meant to be. So, okay. So any questions about um, judgment or have new heavens, new earth? Anything you guys want to? Yeah. I was just thinking, a believer, believers, when they die, you're saying that they, they go to be with the Lord. What happens to those who are not believers when they die? Yeah, so there, it's hard. The Bible doesn't speak to it as much. But I think the one parable Jesus gives us is the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Right. And so there seems to be a space where there's a, there, I think it's kind of more or less a holding, a holding tank, you know, to say, okay, one is miserable, one is joyful. Ultimately, though, it's not the final destination of, of all of us. We will ultimately arrive when we're reunited with our bodies. But there, there's evidently an intermediate state between both of those things. And there, Jesus describes it as a chasm that can't be passed right in that parable um and so that i can't remember what the reference for that passage is but i'll look it up but but yeah there jesus talks about this rich man who had everything good in his life on earth dies didn't love the lord so he's in a terrible place in in um um in his afterlife the poor man who had nothing good in life but trusted jesus was with abraham in that moment to be blessed. And then the the man who was suffering asked God to send somebody back to tell his brothers. And God says, well, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe if somebody comes back from the dead. So mm-hmm. the Bible is what we need to get. You know, so, yeah, but, it, but it's not a perfectly clear um, picture. So, but there's a, there's a place. Um, yeah, there's torment for sure. It's not a it's not a happy place, but it's not the ultimate destination. Just as just as, yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. something like that, probably. But that's a good question. Though. Yeah, you're you're fine. Where does the devil end in all of this? Does he end yep. in hell? He sure does. Thankfully, oh, yes. Yeah, great question. Yeah, so at the end of it all. Um, Christ cast Satan and the demons into the lake of fire, uh, where, which was prepared for them, actually. It wasn't prepared for any of us. <laughs> uh, we're, we're there if we reject Jesus, but it was actually prepared for Satan to be punished eternally. So why does he unlock him after a thousand years? Is he going to screw us all up again? Well, so it depends on who you ask. So <laughs> if you ask, yes. So if you ask a premillennialist, yes. So he's bound for a thousand years um, and then is released in order to create an uprising against Christ for the final battle of Christ's enemies. That will then, that will then usher in the final judgment and, and Satan getting cast into hell. Um, if you ask somebody who's not a premillennialist, they would say that the binding of Satan is, a, is symbolic of the fact, and, and this is what the text actually says, is that he's bound so that he can't deceive the nations. So like an amillennialist would say that Satan is bound even now, but not in regard to all his activity, just in regard to not being able to deceive the nations. So people won't be completely blind to the gospel because of his work. Um, again, that's just a different interpretation of that passage. So 
Satan, I mean, I think everybody believes Satan's somewhat, you know, active in the world. The question is, is how much power does he have? Premillennialists would say he's going to be bound literally for a thousand years and then be able to run rampant and cause all this havoc at the end of it. Uh, Anomalist would say, well, that's symbolic language, but he is bound from deceiving people even now through the whole church age and then will be cast into hell when he's when Christ returns. So again, just I don't know where I don't know where a postmillennialist actually would land on that because I don't know that much about postmillennialism in in the details in the nitty gritty. But that's the basic kind of two views on that. So the story still comes back that we have to be prepared so we're not mm. misled and yeah and whatever. Yeah, okay, maybe you want to peek here, but still the moral of the story is get prepared. Yeah. Come to Jesus is the moral of the story. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, that's kind of step one, yes, but also yep. prepare yourself. Sure. You are not so yeah. easily deceived from Yep. That. Yep. Well, Absolutely. Be clear what the mark of the beast is if you're here, if we're still here when through the tribulation. That's a great question. I don't know. I, I hate to tell you that. I don't know. I think it would. I mean, I think it would be. Yeah. The one, the one verse in, uh, in one of the Gospels that talks, Matthew or Luke, I think, talks about that if it's possible, they would even deceive the very elects. Yeah. So those who trust in Christ apparently have the ability to discern mm-hmm. and to follow Christ based on the Word of God. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think where we need to land is just again to go back to what Paul says of the Thessalonians that we're to encourage one another with these words. Um, I think so much of the end times discussion, at least as I've seen it um, play out in, in different friends of mine or whatever, is it creates a lot of uh, anxiety and fear, and um, that's not what it's meant to do for believers. It's it's meant to lead us to more joy in Christ and more hope, um, because yeah, we may go through terrible things, uh, and I think in fact we know we will. We may not, maybe not in the you know tribulational sense of the end times, but Jesus says in this world you will have trouble. We know that, and that's a part of that's just the reality of of life on, in a sinful world. But as Christians, we actually have a, a blessed hope that's that that should anchor us. To, to this and we should encourage each other so again I, I think the the biggest takeaway from this if I could encourage your hearts in it is don't allow these things to stir you into anxiety and fear but come to Christ trust him he knows what he's doing and he's got a plan and even if that plan involves our suffering for a season we still come out on the other side way ahead of where we would have been if we didn't have Jesus so anyways I'll, I'll just leave it with that um let me pray for us. And again, if you have more questions, you want to process stuff, I'll, I'll stick around for a little bit here too. Um, but let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you for just the reminder of the hope we have in you as Christians, as people who have trusted you and have drawn our hearts to you by faith. We thank you uh, that we don't have to fear the end. In fact, we get to look forward to it and and rejoice in it, knowing that our reward will be to be with you and, and to be in a perfect um, world again. So we pray for your help to
protect us from fear, protect us from anxiety, protect us from anything that wouldn't drive us to Christ. And uh, we pray that you would give us um, great hope as we go out of here. And uh, thank you for the encouragement of your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.